Hi, I'm Jacqueline Kinser, and for the past five years, I've been helping families all around the globe to overcome their breastfeeding challenges. And this is the first non-clinical breastfeeding podcast that shows you how to rock breastfeeding and master motherhood through practical tips, mindset shifts, and honest conversation to create a confident and empowering breastfeeding journey. This is the Breastfeeding Talk Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Mia. We have Mia Smith with us today. She's a registered dietitian in Cape Town, South Africa, and she's working on her IBCLC. I'm so excited to have you here to bring a fresh perspective to the show. So say hi to everyone and tell us more about yourself, Mia. Tell us about what you're doing uh, with your studying and your practicing. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Um, Yeah, so I'm a registered dietitian and I'm actually kind of specializing in plant-based health. So like my practice that I work for, we see people from like all walks of life, um, kind of, yeah, like pregnancy through old age. And we kind of try to intervene with plant-based diets. So like, even if it's just people wanting to be healthy on a vegan or mostly plant-based diet, um, or like someone who maybe was recently diagnosed with like diabetes or something, um, and they kind of want to treat it um, holistically before, you know, before taking medication. So that's kind of my day job, I would say. And then I'm, yes, I'm working on my IVCLC. So I actually volunteer with an organization called the Zoe Project um, and doing my hours with them. Um, they're a great, like, uh, nonprofit organization. Um, they're kind of situated at a, a clinic um, where they, yeah, they help with everything from like mental health, substance abuse issues, um, alcohol abuse, abuse of husbands, just like wherever someone needs help on their pregnancy and like infancy journey, they step in. Um, so it's great to work with someone or like, yeah, an organization like that, where they kind of, um, treat the mental health side as well, because as we all know, breastfeeding is a very, um, mental decision too. Absolutely. Wow. You have just so much wonderful, varied experience that all just gels really nicely together for ultimately helping with, you know, breastfeeding and beyond. So that's really amazing. Um, do you, when you do your volunteer work there with that Zoe project, uh, are you doing the breastfeeding piece or are you doing the, the diet piece as well or some other things? Yeah. So what we do, so it's kind of like, a day hospital in conjunction with a maternal and obstetrics unit. So like low risk women will give pregnancy or like will get their pregnancy care there, like antenatally, and then they give birth there. And then sometimes they're kept like postnatally. If if it's like, yeah, if it's a high risk, they'll be referred on to like the more specialized hospitals. So what I kind of do is I give the diet advice where it's needed, or I'll do like a talk, a kind of education talk and see if anything comes out of that. Like if there's someone who needs, you know, some extra help or whatever after the talk. And then I kind of, I shadow a doula. Um, so I, I'm like part of the birth process. And then after that, I'll like go and kind of 
there's a room where the moms are kept for 24 hours after giving birth. Um, if they're like, if something was a little bit complicated and then for six hours, if it was just like a normal uncomplicated pregnancy, then they stay for six hours for observation and um, they are not allowed to leave until the baby latches well um, because yeah, they are very like <laughs> very breastfeeding um, positive there. So that's nice. So um, I get a lot of experience with that, like that first kind of 48 hours. And then that's also where um, some of the lower weight babies will come back for checkups. So they'll come like, yeah, they'll come there and get like checked out, um, explained about like the um, skin to skin position um, and yeah, any warning signs that the mom needs to watch out for. So babies that are like born, uh, maybe a little bit too early. And then I think they're seen until they are around two kilograms, which I'm not sure what that is in pounds. <laughs> but yeah, like the, there's kind of like a weight cutoff where they, if they're big enough, they're growing well, they're gaining every week, then they are discharged. Wow. That sounds like really amazing care that you're able to participate in there. And just listening to you describe it, I wish we had more of that uh, happening in the US. So um, I know we were talking before the show, and this is how we even connected to have you come on, was just that um, I always am able to bring the U.S. perspective to things I talk about, but that's not the only place where breastfeeding happens. And you have this different perspective being where you are and, and working with these populations that you are with this organization, too. So, you know, breastfeeding is always something that's important and valuable, but specifically where you are, it, it makes a bigger health impact when it goes well. And I'd love for you to talk a bit about that. Yeah, so so what kind of started it was like as dietitians, we do the theory of breastfeeding and because it is literally like yeah, part of feeding. So we do kind of the nutrition for the mom and why it's optimal nutrition for the baby. Um, and then because yeah because I studied in Cape Town um they do put like the South African perspective on it um but like that's all good to know and stuff but what actually like kind of cemented it for me was when you qualify as any health professional in South Africa you have to do a year of community service which means that like you work at a government institution so either a clinic or a hospital um and the government chooses where they send you. So I got sent to a really rural, it was a village, like in the middle of nowhere. Um, and it was in a different like province to the one that I'm living in now. So it was, it was like far away, very like sort of different than what I'm used to. Um, different language, everything, different culture. So when I was there, it was because it was so rural like I was only used to like the urban side of things like yes Cape Town does have breastfeeding issues and and all of that but where I was in the village it was like it was it just kind of hit more home because they didn't have water for like most of the day their electricity was like also very spotty so all of those things like led to kind of it, it made it really impossible to formula feed well um so yeah like when I worked there I was just kind of like okay breastfeeding can actually have such a big impact in these babies lives um I saw so many so many kids like come into the hospital with like dehydration from diarrhea or just like malnutrition kidney failure liver failure um because when like when the 
they like struggled with the breastfeeding, um, the moms would often turn to formula because they were so like desperate to just get something in the baby, but it wasn't sustainable. So they could often like start, but it was too expensive to sustain like formula feeding, giving them enough bottles like per day. And then what would happen is like the formula would get diluted. So they would either like do like one scoop per bottle or like mix it with flour, mix it with cornmeal or something like that. Um, so oftentimes it would be like really early introduction of solids because like cereal and stuff is cheaper than formula. So like giving the baby, you know, from two weeks of age, even like giving them porridge and stuff just to fill their stomachs. But yeah, long-term it didn't always work out that great. Um, so that's kind of where I was like, I need to learn more so I can help more. (laughs) Um, and were they yeah, were they turning to, to the formula because um, they just weren't able to maintain the milk production, or was it more of an issue of of actually getting the breastfeeding to happen, like the baby latching? Or I'm sure it was a confluence of factors, but just what what precipitated that start of the formula use? I would it would be different. So a lot of the times, the case was something like the mom was going to be the primary caregiver, but she maybe got a job in a town far away, left the baby with the grandmother. The grandmother had very outdated knowledge and like didn't really know, you know, the how to formula feed well. Other times it would be something like, I think there's a really big lack of antenatal education because there is not enough staff. So like one nurse cannot one-on-one educate, you know, like, 50 mothers a day, which is like the numbers that the clinics are kind of seeing, like it's, it's in and out, it's very high turnover. And then like postnatally, most of the time, the only thing that they could really focus on was like warning signs, like seeing the baby. Okay. They look fine. They're breathing, you know, blood sugar is fine, like out. So it's not like sitting there with the mom asking her, like, show me how to latch. How's like, how's it going? How many times do they feed? Um, I would say the only time when that kind of intervention happened was when it was too late, when like the baby was in the hospital sick, because then like there was more care that could be given. Like the moms would stay in hospital with the baby and then we would try to fix the problem then. But it was, there isn't a lot of like preventative care happening. And that I think is the major issue. Um, And it's also just like a lack of education. Like a lot of times it just doesn't get like the message doesn't get to them like okay yes this is this like often it's just like okay breast is best but no other information like okay it might be difficult it's normal for the baby to feed every hour every two hours in the beginning that's cluster feeding like it's it's helping your supply to regulate um like that kind of thing i would say the the one thing that um that the nurses and and hospital staff are quite good at is um teaching the moms how to hand express so like often because electricity is such an issue because money is an issue. Like, yeah, no one there had an electric breast pump, not even the hospital did. So it was more like, okay, this is how you hand express. And it works really well. Like most of the moms could do it really well. And then it's like going over the storage guidelines. Like, how do you store this? If you have to go back to work when your baby's two weeks old, like you can't take them with you. Um, So even if there are, you know, laws and things in place to, to say like, okay, this is, this is what we're, going to do you you have to express at work and then send it to the caregiver like all of those things like a lot of times the logistics doesn't work out 
Mm, yeah, no, that's so important. I, I'm glad to hear that hand expression is being taught and that it's going well, because obviously that's essential. And I think that's something that is missed in the U.S. quite often, where um, here I feel like moms are pretty primed to just get the breast pump that's covered by insurance or every hospital will have them. And um, that just they, they just expect to use it and that it will work great. And they never learn that skill of hand expression. So um, it's very essential there. And, um, it's so interesting to hear just what's happening, you know, that, that these, these families, the mom has to go back to work so much sooner, leaving them with a caregiver that maybe doesn't know. Um, you think you brought up a really good point that, you know, they might hear, uh, breast is best, but they're doing whatever they can to get food into the baby. And often it's the wrong foods. So, you know, if, if formula is not, uh, as available or it's too expensive or whatnot, um, you know, we hear this phrase in the U S a lot about fed is best, right. But what you're saying is no, it's no, you can't just feed the baby anything. You cannot just fill the belly. And how do you work with families to try to turn that around once that's already happened? Well, it's it's difficult. Like when I was working in the hospital, I remember like distinctly there was a, a baby who came in and a, the little baby was super dehydrated, super malnourished, hadn't really picked up his birth weight. He was like six weeks old. So he should have like reached his birth weight again. And the mom had stopped breastfeeding. But again, so like I think it was maybe two weeks into the month, she would run out of money. And then the formula would become like, literally just flour mixed with water and that's what the baby would be fed so like kind of no you know nutrition wow. in in that and um i had to help her to like restart the process of like like lactation so it was a lot of skin to skin a lot of hand expressing and i was so like excited when she got like colostrum out i think she got a few like drops out um and kind of so that was one of the things like we would always try to like reintroduce lactation um, other times it would just be a lot of education. So we would be, you know, we would say like there, you know, there's other ways around this. So, um, but most of the time you don't know if, if that sticks because there isn't like a good follow-up program. Like if they live far away from the hospital, it's not easy. It's not like affordable for them to come back for check-ins and stuff. So, yeah, I would say it was really, it's really different different like case by case kind of taking it and seeing what you can do um the one thing so the the government here does have a free formula program but it's very strict because they don't want to like promote or be seen to like hand out free formula just like you know as as the moms wanted it. it's more like i think the criteria is something of along the lines of like the mom literally cannot breastfeed. So one time we had a mom who had a, had a mastectomy. So she was eligible for the program because she literally could not, it wasn't her choice. Like she had had breast cancer, so she couldn't choose not, you know. Um, and then other times it's like, if, if the baby's going into foster care or something like that, then they would um, provide the formula. Um, or if the baby had been severe, had had severe acute malnutrition, which the WHO guidelines, like that's what they use to define severe acute malnutrition. Um, so if the baby suffered from that, then like it kind of had to get to that point, but you don't want to get to that point before like, you know, regulations would step in and say like, okay, you know, here's the, here's what you can do. <laughs> so, wow. um, 
Yeah, I yeah, think it's it's, it's definitely <laughs> less strict here to get formula through the WIC program. Yeah. Um, it's sort yeah. of kind of a choice. You're just more financially incentivized if you don't get the formula. So um, that's so interesting that it's that's harder there. I, it makes sense. I, I understand what they're trying to do, but yeah. what you're saying is decisions at a policy level might sound great, but at the ground level and in, in real life, what's happening, that's yeah. really working out for people. So yeah. yeah. And, and what you said about relaxation, that's, that's amazing that, um, you know, you've been doing, uh, that work. I would say that's something in, in the U S or Australia or Canada or UK. Those are, those are things that happen very rarely here. So, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's nice to know that you are working with people to do that. And, and, um, what I guess my, what does this translate to in the end? You know, these, these are starting out with some really poor health outcomes for these babies. Do you have a a higher infant mortality rate there then because of these feeding issues? I don't think our infant mortality is higher, but it kind of translates into like more readmissions to hospital and those kinds of things. So like a lot of diarrhea coming back or, um, yeah, a lot of the times what happens is the baby would have diarrhea from like in like inappropriate formula feeding. And then um, traditional medicine is was still really like a, a big thing in, in the, especially the village where I worked. It's not so much in the urban areas, but where I worked, it was, it was very like, so they would give herbs or traditional medicines that um, would cause kidney or liver damage or failure. So then it would really become a problem. So even if like that, that was another thing that we kind of tried to do is like, okay, if your baby does have diarrhea, please bring them to the clinic. Don't give anything not prescribed by a medical doctor because you don't know the effects that it's going to have. And then oftentimes like they would come, come in and then, yeah, there would be signs of like ingestion of, of some kind of herb. And, um, it wouldn't always be known to like the medical staff what it was and then that's another issue because how do you treat it if you don't know what the baby had um so that was it kind of like makes this whole big (laughs) snowball effect like okay so inappropriate formula feeding leading to diarrhea leading to like inappropriate medicine and then only did they come to the hospital you know um I've had a baby that came in with that case and it was an older baby she was around like one and a half but she was in the hospital for months and months because her system was just so like destroyed she had to go onto like EPN like be fed and you know into her um arteries and veins and yeah like all of those things she kind of couldn't even her sister system couldn't even handle like any food um so getting her rehabbed and that that all came from diarrhea that came that was treated like with with traditional medicine um so that's kind of one of the effects. And then I think a lot of the effects are only really seen maybe in school um, if there's issues with like, you know, cognitive issues, but it's not always, it's not so easy to say that that is why. It's not like, okay, you know, this child is struggling school. Um, it's because they were, you know, it's it's hard to retrospectively do those kinds of studies and things. So um, sure. yeah, most of the time, it's kind of lost into the system. You don't really know what happens to the child, like after you get them well enough to be discharged from hospital. Hmm. Yeah, that's really hard to not have a consistent tracking or follow-up and see what can be done to improve outcomes for sure. 
um, since we've talked so much about it too, and I, I find that this is true all around the world, most people really don't know what it takes to formula feed safely. Obviously, where you are, it's much more of a problem, um, but virtually every family I work with is, is not educated. Pediatricians don't even provide the education on how to formula feed babies safely. Now, most of the time, unless someone is, is you know, uh, you know, out of severe low economic status, they're not diluting the formula or things like that. But I still have seen that. Sometimes people think, oh, it's hot out and my baby needs more hydration. So they're going to do that. You've, you've kind of talked about some of the effects of not formula feeding properly, but how, how should families be using formula properly? Um, I think that's really important that we talk about that. Yeah. So what we do is, um, like there's a kind of, it's not a questionnaire, but we use the AFIS criteria. So it stands for acceptable, feasible, affordable, sustainable, and safe. So you kind of go through that with, with the family. So like acceptable, is this something like culturally to you that's acceptable? Like, are you okay with formula feeding your baby if you don't want to breastfeed? And then feasible, like, is it actually possible? Um, you have, you kind of have to get really personal, which can get awkward. Like I've, literally had to ask people like do you have running water in your house um if not where is your closest source of water do you have electricity to boil a kettle do you have um you know like a sink or something to wash it in like do you have an appropriate bottle um yeah so that gets a bit awkward especially if, if it's my first time meeting them <laughs> um having to ask that and then affordable so then that's another one that's kind of awkward because you have to be like this is what it, the cheapest tin of formula costs um your baby will use this many tins in the beginning by one year of age it'll be this many a month can can you do that um so and then sustainable so like yes you might opt to formula feed now know that you like it's hard to to go back to breastfeeding if you find the formula isn't working so can you sustain this at least the first year of this baby's life which is how long they need milk um either breast or formula and then safe so like is it yeah is it safe like how are you preparing the bottles how are you preparing the milk um Sometimes it's even like going into, can you read English? Like the instructions on the, on the tin is in English. Um, is that a problem for you? Like um, a lot of, a lot of moms in, in these communities are actually, um, they're from, from other African countries. So like Malawi, Zimbabwe, um, the Congo, and they kind of like come here, you know, as not refugees, but as immigrants. And they, they don't have the same access to like education that a, a South African citizen would have. So that's another thing. Like, can you read the tin and know how to increase the bottles as the baby grows? Like all of those things. So I go through that criteria with them. And then it's like, if that's all good, then only can you say like, okay, you've been cleared to formula feed, but like, yeah, who am I to have that kind of, you know, even if I approve or disapprove, it's not necessarily that they will listen to what I say. Um, right. Which fair enough, like everyone has a right to decide how to feed their baby, but it is things that you have to think about. Right. You're, you're kind of this, this figure that's put into the mix and there's some responsibility mm. for you to provide the education, right. And whether or not they follow it, you know, you, you don't have control over yeah. but You have to do your best. So yeah. That's, that's really hard, you know, and, and you had mentioned too, how, you know, oh my goodness, the, you know, just mixing formula and water. Yes, it looks white and milky, but, um, there's no nutrition mm -hmm. in that or very little, obviously. So, uh, normally 
the guidelines for, for breastfeeding and introducing complementary foods, exclusive breastfeeding to six months, then you can introduce complementary foods, which obviously need to be something nutritious and of, of good quality there. I'm sure you're probably trying to promote those same guidelines where you are, but you already know that that's not realistic. So when you're talking about introducing solid or complementary foods to families, what are the main education pieces that you're trying to get across to them? Are, are you trying to get them to wait to six months? Are you going, well, it's probably not realistic. It's okay at four months. Like, or, or they have less access to formula, so they may need to introduce it sooner. Like what, what's that dynamic like? No, we try to just keep it at six months. We try to like advocate for that most of the time, even if it is formula feeding that like may not, you know, be going ideally. We just, we still say like, um, you know, you have to push it to at least six months. Um, it doesn't doesn't really happen most of the time. I think, like like I said, there's still a big um, a big thing of like not not trusting like medical professionals so much, um, and going to the community for advice. Where like mm-hmm. the granny or the auntie would would say like what they did, and then it'd be like okay, I'm going to do that because my auntie has had six kids. They all turned out fine. I'm going to listen to her versus like this random person I met at the clinic once, which makes sense. Like it's someone in your life that, you know, is, is you're close to. So obviously, yeah, um, that is kind of what happens. Um, but as a medical like professional, we still advocate for, um, in for six months. And then we kind of really emphasize iron rich foods because that is still a, like anemia is still a big problem. So we're like, start with iron rich foods with whether that's fortified infant cereal or like, you know, traditional foods like maybe liver or whatever you like have access to. So sometimes it's, it's fish or pilchards or chicken or, um, beans, lentils, like, yeah, that's kind of, that's the basics that we do is like just milk until six months and then iron rich foods when you start and vegetables. So it is very, very basic information. And that's another gap. I think that will be really good to like, just kind of cover as like how to actually properly start. Um, yeah. Complementary foods. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, just for my own curiosity, it somehow entered my mind. Do you have issues where they're trying to feed just straight animal milks, like from from goats or other animals, to their babies? Or is that um, not so much an issue? Sometimes, sometimes, but like cow's milk is still—it's not expensive. But if you're very rural, you don't really have access to a shop with like refrigerated cow's milk. So sometimes it'd be like yeah. long life milk. And in South Africa, we do, we have what's called the R991 document, which is like, it was kind of adapted from the WHO's like uh, formula feeding standards or whatever. And it's like, kind of goes into um, like how you can um, market milks. So all, all, milk looking things in South Africa have to say not suitable for infant feeding. So like coconut milk jars or like tins would have that on or almond milk, like, yeah, basically anything with the word milk associated with it will say that. Um, because yeah, I think it, it, yeah, it has been an issue in the past. Yeah, that's good. I've, I've definitely had, um, some clients who uh, are very naturally minded, they may have their own farm animals and they live rurally and they've asked me, can I feed my baby goat's milk? And I'm like, no, I mean, there are homemade formula recipes, <laughs> <Not yet. laughs> but um, 
you know, you got to add other things into it and that's a whole safety issue of its own. But um, I have, I have been asked that question and it sounds like maybe more in the U S than happening there, which is, which is funny, but for anyone listening, no, don't feed your baby straight animals milk um, until they're ready for that (laughs) as a complimentary beverage or something. But yeah, that's, it's, it's so great to hear how different things are there because I think that we lose that perspective here in the U.S. when we have such easy access. I mean, I can go to the gas station down the street and go buy formula. Like, it's just so yeah. incredibly easy to access things, or it's it's easier here to get it for free, it sounds like, from the government. Um, and yeah, yeah. I can probably go on, you know, but there are cases where um, there there's some, there's some intersect of things for sure. Um, but I know that you know, you and I know from, from your training and, and whatnot that, you know, not having good nutrition at the beginning of life can absolutely have this lifelong impact. And like you said, it's sometimes really hard to prove. Um, I'd love to turn the conversation a bit to infectious disease. Um, you mentioned diarrhea, which is obviously a huge issue. Um, and of course comes with more dangers there, right? If they're not close to a hospital and the baby's dehydrated, oh my goodness, you know, or they're giving these, these herbs from, from the village person. And, you know, here that's, you know, most people are only going to have things at home that are over the counter, relatively safe sort of, sort of things that they might give. They might go buy some Pedialytes, you know, that's, (laughs) we're very, very, very privileged, uh, here. Even people who are of low socioeconomic status are still generally going to have access to those things. Um, so I, you know, that coupled with, uh, HIV, which is obviously much more prominent there. What's, what's that like in that environment in terms of just with breastfeeding? Because here it's, it's, still kind of a toss up in, in terms of like, if a mother's HIV positive, she can breastfeed if she's on antiretroviral drugs and, you know, has, you know, meets this criteria in terms of, you know, some sort of lab work or something that's done. But most of the time it's encouraged that if the mother's HIV positive, she should just formula feed. Um, but there formula is a huge issue. So how does that all shake out? Yeah. So we, um, Another government program that like is kind of in practice is called the Preventing Mother to Child Transmission. So it's um it's like early identification. If the mom is HIV positive, they like f- they try to find that out as early as possible in pregnancy. Sometimes the mom would even like know going into a pregnancy. And then it's really about like they get followed followed up more often. They get their ARVs that they have to take like and they get their viral load tested. So it, it all goes like based on a viral load. Um, and then during delivery, they take like kind of extra precautions. So I think like prolonged labor is one of the risk factors, um, like premature rupturing of membranes, those things. So then if they know that the mom is HIV positive, they're going to take extra precautions with that, um, with the delivery. And then um, the baby gets tested at like different intervals after birth. So I think it's like right after birth. And then they wait like four weeks and six weeks to try to see like if, um, you know, if 
there's a window period in HIV where like the virus is, you're infected, the virus is replicating, but it doesn't show up in your blood yet. So then they try to test the baby every few weeks until like a certain cutoff. I think it's a, like around three months to see like, okay, this baby really wasn't infected. So they, they do all of that. And all the time the baby is on prophylactic medication. So they take, the baby takes ARVs regardless of their like status. The mom takes her ARVs. And then um, exclusive breastfeeding is still, advised because formula has like much more dire consequences. And one of the really big issues is mixed feeding. So mixed feeding is like a big no. So that's what we tell the moms who have HIV um, from the beginning. We say like, you can't do both. So you have to decide now and then you have to stick with it. And then again, going through the formula criteria or like going through breastfeeding, how to breastfeed and all of that. Um, because yeah, mixed feeding is like a big big kind of like makes you more prone it, it basically messes with the permeability of the baby's stomach um and then it can allow the virus through that's in the breast milk because yes bre like breast milk will have the hiv virus in it it's not as i would say like potent as like blood or something you know another bo bodily fluid but um yeah so they kind of are really strict with that and the like keeping the baby on prophylactics. And then what we kind of go through if the mom does opt to breastfeed is we um, would like talk about thrush or cracked nipples or mastitis, like things that where blood might come out of the breast. Then we're like, okay, you need to hand express that side and like discard that milk, only feed on one side, but the express to keep up the supply on the other side. Or um, what is also like popular, but this is like so hard to do. I don't even... I don't think I've had any moms who actually do this, but like um, they, you kind of pasteurize the breast milk. So yes, you're killing a lot of like the good, you know, the good things in the breast milk, but it's still better than formula milk. So you um, express and put it in like hot water, like put a container of hot water and then you put the container of breast milk in. So it's like, yeah, I don't know what you call that on this. The, yeah, you can make that on the stove too, but you basically right. like warm, warm up and pasteurize it. So um it kills the virus. Um, and then again, like it does kill some of the immune cells and things, but yeah, that's, um, kind of like what we do with breast, the breastfeeding side. And then we, like I said, follow up often, test the baby often. Um, and, and then again, like the introduction of solids is really important to really delay that until six months until the, the baby's like stomach is more developed so they can, can take, can take the solids. Um, cause solids and breast milk is like a form it's mixed feeding technically but when they're six months of age it's fine right yeah because the the gut's more developed and and not as leaky so to speak so yeah um, it's safer for sure that's yeah I didn't even think about the the consideration for like cracked nipples or mastitis or something yeah. and potentially introducing you know blood or more virus so that's that's so fascinating. Are you seeing, or, or do you know if you're seeing good outcomes from HIV positive moms who are breastfeeding, like that their babies aren't, are doing okay and not getting the virus from the mother? Yeah, there, that's why, that's why it is like in practice is because there have been good results. Like it's that's been, what they, I think about like maybe 10 or 15 years ago, all HIV positive moms would just get formula, like from the hospital, from the government, whatever. And that did not go well because again, like the not so healthy feeding practices would lead to a lot of diarrhea, which then would actually lead to the baby like getting HIV because 
it would, yeah, there would just be like a lot of mixed feeding and and other things going wrong. So now they've they've really turned, and it's also the WHO's like recommendations that you can um, breastfeed with, you know, yeah. with having HIV. But I think a lot of like there's been a lot of campaigns to really um, educate people about HIV. So people are getting better at taking their medication because the medication can work really well to the point where like they don't even pick up the virus in the mom's blood. Um, so it's like that's suppressed. And if if you have a viral low, that's like, it, I think it's lower than the detectable limit is what we call it. Then, um, then it's perfectly safe to breastfeed. And most of those moms do have good outcomes. Babies are are like fine they develop well and i actually think like in a kind of bit of a twist because they have so much more support and follow-ups they might have better breastfeeding outcomes than a mom who doesn't have hiv who doesn't come back to the clinic so often and like hear this message so often and have you know people who can help her so mm. um yeah that's kind of one of the benefits i guess <laughs> if you can yeah. see it like that well, that's good because you're you're breaking that um, intergenerational sort of health outcome, right? So it's, it's she's not passing yeah. this on; she's actually creating a better outcome for her baby than for herself. Yeah. So that's yeah. that's wonderful. So long term, it's going to be a huge improvement for that population. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully the. Hopefully. <laughs> but it's we'll great see. to hear that the medications are working so well. I, I've I've been hearing about that, and um, you know that that that's you know, we've needed that for so long. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I was listening to a podcast about, you know, everything going on with SARS-CoV-2 and, you know, this almost resentment from researchers in the HIV field going, we've been working with this for 40 years and we still don't have a good vaccine. And you guys got one for this. (laughs) It's it's sad, but I think because that the ARVs, the uh, anti-retroviral therapies are are really good. It's, um, you know, that that's working well. So Um, Yeah, they have like improved a lot in the last few years even. And like they got the kind of the cocktail of of them right, like which ones to use together, which ones don't work um, and that kind of thing. I will say actually what like I kind of forgot to mention is if if the mom has had two kind of levels of of, um, antiretrovirals and her viral load is still high, then she's also eligible for the like free formula program. But she has to have like failed two first line ARV treatments um, and still have like a high viral load in order to get to that. Because sometimes, yes, like it is, I don't know, like resistant in a way, or she, you know, she has to like be good at at, like adhering to the program. of taking her ARVs. Got it. That, that makes sense. So yeah. Um, it, I like that there's a lot of screening happening though, to make sure that, you know, they're going well and that they're getting the care that they, that they need. Um, yeah, it's, it's so important. Um, I'm also curious too, cause you mentioned it in the beginning about just your role as, as, as a registered dietitian. And you talked about, uh, teaching about plant-based diets and whatnot, um, going, you know, through working with, uh, women in pregnancy and then, uh, you know, after the birth. So what are you recommending in terms of diet? You mentioned diabetes too. We know that can impact Mm -hmm. lactation and breastfeeding. I'd love to hear more about the diet piece from you too. Okay. Yeah. So I think it's worth like explaining that in South Africa, there's obviously still a really big socioeconomic gap. So my um, like community service here and my kind of volunteer work is with one and the largest section of the population. But my like dietitian day job is 
in the private sector um, where like money is a lot less of an issue if I can say it more bluntly so it is it my my recommendations definitely vary a lot by what population I'm working with um, and a lot of dietitians um, in South Africa like they either go into into private practice like working in private hospitals with private outpatients or they stick with like the public sector so I think like it is a u- unique kind of perspective for me to be still working in both because in our training, we only do the public sector. We only get exposed to that because that's like where you're needed. Um, and then, yeah, I just, I like to do a mix of both because I think it's like, it's good to see both ends of the spectrum. Um, but yes, I definitely, even in the public sector, I will advocate for like a plant heavy diet. So I think like 80% of the time eating whole unprocessed plant foods is the the best health comes outcomes that you're going to get so that doesn't mean you have to be vegan um but yes definitely like most of the time eating unprocessed plant foods um and that looks differently like i said between the two populations so um for example like a lot of the traditional um kind of african foods is like you know beans and spinach or corn and beans and that kind of thing and that's like yes it's perfectly healthy it's like using people's cultural foods um to advocate for them to like you know eat more of that um because yeah we i think it's similar to the u.s here where there's uh, a lot of processed foods and it's it's easily accessible um and it's not always it doesn't always have the best health outcomes so even today at the clinic where i was um in the like kind of room where the moms wait to go home there was like biscuits and chips and things being sold like no fruits in sight <laughs> so it's it's that kind of thing where it's like yes for the middle class um those foods are easy to access it's like on every corner because they they last longer and they're cheap and it's like less prep work so if you work like a 16 hour shift and you have to get home you have to take public transport like you're going to get home and you're not going to care what you eat um so being mindful of like what population i'm working with definitely but in both a lot of plants <laughs> basically yeah yeah it's it's so important um you know i like you said no matter what is going on, what stage of life you're in, it is important that we get more of our nutrition from plants. And um, I know that there's been this big push in the US for keto and people think that means like eating only meat or something <laughs> like uh, vegetables <laughs> and fruits. Like they're still, they're still keto. Like, I, I don't know. Um, I got, I was getting my hair done this weekend and the the two stylists were, were going to order lunch from this Greek place. And the, my stylist said that the, his coworker was, um, you know, she was doing the keto diet and he asked her, you know, are you just, are you just going to get the chunks of meat again? (laughs) And she said, yes. And I'm like, but why couldn't you get, it's a Greek place. Could you not be getting like a Greek salad with that and having just like some (laughs) olive oil dressing or like, why are there no olives, cucumbers, lettuce, tomatoes, like Mm -hmm. all of that could really be a part of it. And I just, you know, it's, it's just interesting to me. I think that I feel like at least in the U S we eat way too much meat, you know, and, um, or eating every meal, (laughs) it's not required. And I'm really glad you brought that up because all of, all of moms ask me all the time, you know, what kind of diet should I have while I'm breastfeeding? You know, what food should I include? What should I avoid? Um, and I think that maybe I don't do as good of a job explaining the importance of plant-based foods, 
Um, I usually just try to say whole foods, unprocessed foods, but I think it's really important we emphasize the plants, you know, and yeah. so many of these plants are lactogenic. So eating, yeah. eating, eating grains, eating, eating beans, eating uh, dark green vegetables, you know, I'm, you obviously have, yeah. you know, both sort of disciplines that you can draw from when you're giving this kind of advice. Those are wonderful for milk production. Yeah, no, I, I do get people asking me like, what can I eat? And then I'm like, well, it's more just like eating enough whole foods because yes, you have really high calorie needs when you're breastfeeding. So you need to like up the, up the, um, intake, um, because people often will think like in pregnancy, you have to eat for two, you have to eat so much, but it's actually, no, it's lactation where you have to eat a lot more like pregnancy. It's, it's maybe like one snack in the second trimester and then two snacks in the third trimester. Like it's really not a lot extra, but then when you're breastfeeding, you need to like, yeah, really get enough. in. But it's the same here. Like the low carb thing is a big trend. And, um, I don't know, like if you know a lot of about South African culture, but like all stages of life and socioeconomic, everything here loves meat. So it's like a big part of our culture to like barbecue it or like you call it a braai. Um, and it's like a big thing to, to yeah, like socially you have meat, like with friends, with family in the weekday all the time. <laughs> so <laughs> it is hard to um, like get people here to just try to you know I always tell them like start with one meal in the week like do a meat-free Monday supper not even the whole Monday just do like your dinner meat-free and then go from there to up your plant intake because all the evidence points to like having you know less animal products in your diet being the better kind of eating pattern to mm. have so yeah I'm so it's, glad it's you slow process yeah. <laughs> No, I'm so glad you're talking about this. Um, I don't know if it's trickled its way down there to to some of the people who might have access to this, but here there's this been this uh, new thing called the carnivore diet. Have you heard about that? Mm, yeah. I'm like, wait, we are only eating meat. Um, and yeah, I remember no. watching a video a few years ago, maybe longer now, of this guy who decided to eat only steaks, and he was, I don't know if it was a documentary or something. I remember it being a fairly long video that I watched at least and, uh, him and his wife and they were, you know, they went to the, you know, they worked out all the time and they had these, you know, great bodies or whatever. But, um, I I've seen doctors here promoting yeah. that and it really worries me. I, I had a family I worked with recently that the dad was doing the carnivore diet and he seemed to kind of be pushing it on the breastfeeding mom. And, um, yeah, I just, you know, maybe you could, uh, sort of reiterate why that's not a healthy diet. Yeah. So basically like why it's popular, um, here at least like the low carb kind of thing is because it does lead to weight loss. So yes, if you cut out a major group of your food, you are going to lose weight, which hopefully this is not so much of a trend with like breastfeeding mothers, because like like I said, you have high calorie needs and oftentimes, you know, you just, you do burn through a lot of the pregnancy weight by breastfeeding, but just for the general population who like always seem to want weight loss, it is a way to lose weight. Um, and that's like, yes, like, like I said, you will, but the and, thing and is, you don't know what's happening. Can I ask a question really quick? Sorry. Is, yeah, do you no, no lose worry. the weight because you're creating a calorie deficit by cutting out a food yeah. group? Okay. Yeah. That's it's like, because you cut out. No, no, it's, it's, it's as simple as that. Like, yes, you're eating less, so you're going to lose weight. So that's the big thing. And then the other thing is like, you don't know what's happening on the inside. So I've had patients who've done this diet and then they have like 
sky high cholesterol, but just they, they have lost weight. So then they're like, I don't know why my doctor is concerned about my cholesterol or my heart health. And I'm like, well, it's because you've had like cholesterol and saturated fat as your main kind of nutrient for the past, however long. Um, and then it's also just like other like little basic things like, you know, fiber, fiber is such an important part of our diet. Um, and fiber is preventative. Like, you know, it prevents high blood pressure. It prevents, um, high cholesterol. It prevents, um, certain kinds of cancers, except like, especially, um, colorectal cancer. It's been proven to like be preventative. Um, and it keeps you full and satisfied. So like cutting out a major part of like fiber out of your diet and it's, yeah, it'll lead to like constipation and all these other like health problems. So maybe initially, yes, you will feel good because you've lost some weight. But then after a while, it's like, well, I'm constipated all the time. I feel like sluggish and, and slowed down. Um, animal products are very pro-inflammatory. So it kind of leads to like, you know, a lot of inflammation. And then I know that that can lead to issues as, like with breastfeeding as well, or like, you know, kind of exacerbating um, autoimmune conditions and that kind of thing. So it's just like this whole cascade of like, yeah, why why more high fiber plant dense diets are, are better for you than than a meat a meat dense diet. And on the flip side of that, what about a no meat diet? Do you see problems with that? Um, I think that you need to like plan well. You need to plan any diet well. That being said, so um, I work with a lot of vegan patients, and they have no issues. Like they are some of the healthiest people I've seen. Um, even vegetarians, like who will still have some eggs or dairy. Um, like I don't really see a problem with it. You do have to. So I always tell my my patients, like who are vegan or vegetarian, they have to check up on their B twelve levels and their iron levels. Um, whereas, you know, people who eat like an omnivore diet have to check their cholesterol or their blood pressure or whatever. So it's just like taking care of your health, but if it's well-planned, like there are great, you know, plant proteins that you can have every day with, with like good health effects, like beans, lentils, soy, all of those things are very good for you. So, um, I would rather opt for like a no meat diet versus a, a high meat diet because yeah, it's definitely... I think a healthier way to live. Um, and it, it, there's a lot of research coming out now, like pointing to this because it ties into like the climate crisis and all of those things as well. Um, so yeah, it's like has far reaching benefits beyond just like your health. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I don't think people don't like to label their diet. So it's not about putting a label on it. It's just about like, like I said, even if it's just doing one meat free day, <laughs> it'll be good for you. <laughs> Mm, that's, that's really good advice. Yeah. And I, I don't think that extremes of diets or, or adopting a, a sort of a, a brand name diet is, is a good way to go. Cause it's kind of like that criteria for formula you mentioned, it's not sustainable yeah. and often it's not even affordable. So why are we, yeah, exactly. why are we giving ourselves these extreme diets? You know, it's one thing if you're an actor and you need to lose weight for a role, but it's another, if yeah. you're just trying to be a living a healthy life. Um, Gosh, I just thought of a really cool question and I lost it now. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh it's about, it was obviously diet related. Oh, that's such a bummer, but uh, I'm sure it'll come back to me. Um, yeah. What would you say? Uh, oh, I know what it was. Um, because you just see so much, so much going on with, with all these, you know, different popul populations and, and different perspectives that you have. And, 
what is, I guess I should ask, is it common for you to see issues of food intolerance or allergy with what you're doing? Um, and if you do, what can be done about it? Um, yeah, so I would say like in my more, like my dietitian side of things, I do, a lot of people turn to more plant-based diets because of a certain issue. So a lot of them, like, yes, they maybe watch the documentary or something like that. They decide to go plant-based, but some people it's like, well, I've always struggled with like this condition and like lactose seems to make it so much, like it's so much worse when I have dairy. Um, and then that would be like kind of the starting point. Then they'd like cut out that, then cut out meat, then like go from there. Um, so I like, especially in, um, in my more like the public sector, if I work there, um, one of the things that I kind of wish I could implement is like, I see a lot of babies with eczema, especially in, in the like clinic, like admitted with, you know, really bad, severe eczema. And I, I wish that I could kind of use that like dairy free ap approach with them because dairy in, um, in either the baby's diet, if they're like old enough to be eating or the mom who's breastfeeding, like is a big factor in, in eczema. And it's like such a low risk intervention to like, okay, cut out dairy, but it kind of has, again, like, you know, goes into label reading. So can, does the mom have time to go to the shop, read all the labels of other things? Can they afford like almond milk or soy milk to like replace the protein that would be lost with, if they cut out cow's milk, like, you know, kind of going into all those things. So sometimes it definitely is a frustration if I can like think of uh, a way to, you know, to solve an intolerance or like a condition with, with a dietary related thing, but I just know that it won't be feasible. Like, going back to that criteria kind of um but yeah most of the time it's it, it's like the biggest one that I would say I see is dairy there are some people who come through and then they're like I think it might be gluten um but even just cutting out dairy like takes away a lot of those symptoms so yeah I think that's the biggest one yeah that makes sense it's definitely what I see here too um and I think it's, it's still even hard to, even though someone can read the labels and, and go to the shop, like you said, and, and pick something out, sometimes the, the dairy is disguised, you know, in a, mm. in a word that they don't know me. It doesn't say milk. It says something else, right? Mm. Or they sort of miss yeah. miss it and, and, you know, they eat the crackers or whatever and their babies, you know, yeah. it flares up yeah. again or something. So it's, it's not easy, no matter really where you no. are. And then too, I find that sometimes people tend to, be somewhat addicted to foods they're intolerant to. And they're like, I can't yeah. without my cheese. And I'm like, yeah, well, <laughs> you know, you yeah. need to though. Right. So it's, it's just not easy. Um, I know I was dairy free for a long time and kind of started with my babies who had issues and, uh, it took a long time for me to get really used to it. And, and not even want like a little bit of a cheese on my salad or something like then it, I got to a point where I thought, Oh, it's gross. I don't even want it. Um, and now I do eat dairy again, but I'm also not breastfeeding. And I think having a long several year break from it was, was good for me. So I don't eat like a ton of yeah. it, but, but I, I don't want people to think, Oh, it's forever either. You know, I think sometimes that's, that's kind yeah. of a killer why people don't want to get rid of it. And, yeah. you know, they feel it like adds oh. pressure. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard. And like you said, it, it can be a great source of protein. And you mentioned soy, mm. which I feel like soy in the US is like a bad word. 
Like it is a swear word. Oh, is it? Yeah. <laughs> People yeah. are just no, so afraid of soy, but um, the more I learn about it, the more I, I learn that it's not anything to be afraid of. I'd love for you to chat mm-hmm. about soy. People are yeah, so, so it is. It, it is here. It is here as well. Like a lot of people who are really, really into like research will ask me about soy because it gets like this bad reputation because it has phytoestrogens. And then they say like, oh, it acts like estrogen and can cause like feminizing characteristics in men or whatever. But there's no research or like evidence that proves that like definitively. So um, I personally like love soy, like tofu, soy milk, all of like all of that is great. It's a very good source of protein, especially if you're plant-based. It's a good source of calcium um, and it's very low in saturated fat, no cholesterol. So like I definitely advise my patients to have soy in their diet. Um, And it even is like here you get soy mints, which is like kind of dehydrated soy flakes that you can um, soak and use in like maybe like a bolognese sauce or something. Um, And it's yeah, it's quite a nice protein source, but it's like cost-effective and stuff. If you have to feed a big family or if you just want some meat-free days or whatever. So it definitely is something that you can safely include in your diet. Like, yeah, I think the the bad reputation just really comes from the, the phytoestrogens, but it's actually been proven to be like protective, especially in women against certain kinds of cancers where they looked at like big studies of women in Asia who like, you know, they consume soy from the time that they're, they're like little. Um, so yeah, there's, there's actually been shown to have some benefits, not, not like detrimental effects. Mm, yeah. Well, thank you for clarifying that. You know, I think, I think there's a difference between soy based additives and processed foods and like actual mm-hmm. soy foods, right? So sometimes yeah. people go, oh, well, this has, you know, soy this in it or whatever. And I'm like, well, yeah, but that's a mm-hmm. processed food. Like it's obviously not good for you no matter what. Yeah, exactly. So, tofu yeah. or um, like one of my favorite things to get is miso soup. Like, oh, so delicious. You know, oh, there's yeah. a lot of great alternatives. Um, like you said, the meat food yeah. too. And I don't know, maybe you know this, this is going to be me just going, I don't know the answer to this, but there are some Mm -hmm. herbs that work really well for, um, you know, supporting and increasing milk production that are phytoestrogenic. Does soy help with that at all? Do you know of any research on that or evidence, or have you seen it even just in experience that soy helps? That's interesting. I haven't, I haven't like seen any. Yeah. I haven't 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 like specifically seen any. The only one that I really like like no of is is oats, but that's not soy. But I mean, like that's the big one that I recommend because it's affordable and easy to find in shops. So when people do ask me, I'm like, well, it's not like a hundred percent proven. It's more like anecdotal evidence, but it doesn't do you any harm to have oats in your diet. So just yeah, right. <laughs> eat some oats. <laughs> yeah. But no, I don't actually know with soy. It'd be an interesting to study to that see now. that because. No, yeah. we're gonna don't anybody go out and just eat a ton of soy. We're just speculating that yeah. maybe <laughs> Yeah. It's but just something like, that gives you protein and, and you know health benefits. Um, you know, I I can't see it hurting supply. So yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um that's a good that's a good research question, actually. <laughs> like no. I'm gonna go and do some research on that now. <laughs> yeah, any any uh professionals listening who wanna research and like, you know, send send me an email or something, let me know what you find or yeah. if you've seen anything, that would be really cool to hear. So um study, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Or yeah, someone wants to do a study. Um, well, gosh, I just, I love hearing about your experience and how things are going in a different part of the world. And 
you're doing some incredible work that is helping so many people and will make a ripple effect for sure to come. So I just want to say thank you, Mia, for everything that you're doing. And I look forward to you finally um, getting your full IBCLC. I think that'll be just really amazing for you because you do have this awesome international perspective, like you said. Um, is there anything else, just final thoughts, anything that you want to share or impart or uh, anything that you want to talk about before we go? Um, not really. Like I said, it is like a big a big difference between the two sectors where I work. So baby care, healthcare, prenatal, antenatal, all those things are like much different in our private sector, which probably like is another like hour long of talking because it, it is just very different. So it's not like across the board that every single person in South Africa, like doesn't have running water or electricity. Like it is a big part of our population, but um, it's not everyone. And it's also um, like, it's different in other African countries. So Malawi actually is a much like socioeconomically poorer country than South Africa, but they have great breastfeeding rates because they advocate for it in their like communities. And it's, it's just like accepted as the norm there. So it's not like every single, yeah, I think it's easy to kind of generalize, you know, um, Africa, they don't breastfeed, but it's actually like, you know, there's individual countries and cities and populations and, and it's different for every single one of them. So I think that's also important to remember, like I'm speaking from my perspective and it's like, anecdotal and it's you know um it is a good chunk of our population but it's not everyone um so like like i said like the middle class and and up like have very different healthcare experiences um to like our public sector basically mm, that's such a good point a very good point i know that i've heard from uh i we were chatting before this um my husband grew up in in south africa as well obviously, you know, grew up well off and, and whatnot, but, um, there's a frustration from anybody who lives in any country or city in Africa that they're sort of lumped into being Africans. Um, because, yeah. <laughs> like there's, there's all these tribes and languages and every country is different. Uh, South Africa is sometimes very different from other countries. And so it's really, really important that we remember that. And I think that, you know, it's, it's something that the rest of the world really needs to get on board with. And I love that you mentioned, you know, Malawi and how different that is. And it's really cool that you, that you know that, that you get to experience that and share that with us. So it's just been wonderful to hear just what you have to share. And I hope that for everyone listening, that they got something out of this. Um, for me, I think a couple of things that are my takeaways are just, you know, how really important breastfeeding is for health. Um, how important it is that we give support and that education. Um, you said that's really such a huge issue is, is the education, the follow-up, the consistency with things. Um, you know, that sounds like funding and, and all of that as well. So um, it's just been really, really great to, to hear this message and not just, you know, breast is best and everyone should breastfeed. Yeah. Like that's not very helpful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think, yeah, like, thank you so much for your resource as well, because like I said, it's so hard to find like supportive resources for doing your IBCLC. So it's so nice to have one that's like, you know, so comprehensive. 
long. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's it's not easy. And I, I know that because it's an international certification, it, every country is different in terms of their access to testing. And they even have different fee schedules depending on where you live. And um, I get questions all the time, even from people in the U.S. who are like, so I've been on the website, but I still don't understand how to become an IBCLC. Oh, yeah. And it's um, for anyone who is listening to this, who's considering it, there's a really good Facebook group called Want to Be an IBCLC. And I would recommend that you join that group because um, it's led by some IBCLCs who can, uh, they helped me along my journey and they can help you and just some of the nuanced things and get support as you're going through the process. And that is not just for people in the US, that'd be anywhere in the world. So um, if you're not a part of it, Mia, you should join too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I did join that before I started this whole process because I was like, I don't, that website is like not very helpful in terms of like how to actually do it. It's like, it's very good to tell you like what you're going to be, but I'm like, how do I actually get there? (laughs) Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for, again for joining us, Mia. I appreciate it. Um, Mia is very active over on Instagram. I'll link that up in the show notes. Um, if anybody wants to get in touch with her, I would highly recommend that you follow her. She shares some wonderful information and I'll talk to you all on the next episode. Did you know most moms stop breastfeeding in the first month postpartum? I believe succeeding at breastfeeding means having the right mindset. In fact, Studies show that the number one factor that determines breastfeeding success is commitment, which is why I've created my incredible audio download of breastfeeding affirmations, where I give you actionable mantras so you can breastfeed your baby with confidence and peace of mind. And best of all, it's free. To get access to this audio and PDF, simply visit holisticlactation.com slash mantras, and you can get started right now.